Welcome to The Radio Cure. We're a show that looks at new albums and artists in and around the indie music landscape. But this week, Jeremy and I are heading back to the bathroom. Meet Me in the Bathroom by Lizzie Goodman is a gritty first-hand account of the bands and personalities that defined a new generation of New York rockers. It's part three, I Heart New York, the post-9-11 bump, next on The Radio Cure. Hey, Jerry. Hey, what's up, buddy? Not much. Are you ready to get back into the book? Uh, yeah. To I, the city you love? Yeah, I had a... I feel like I've had a rocky start to try to get recording here. It is beer spilled by a cat. I had misplaced my book. I had... Something else happened. It, I was, I'm not off to a good start, so hopefully it's smooth sailing from here. Well, at least you got your bowel movement out of the way, so there's no yes, there, I chance don't think, of that happening. No. One day a, I will That's an improvement myself. from the first episode of 2018. Mm-hmm. One day that's I will good. poop myself on the show, but it will not be this day. <laughs> I'm feeling good. Nice and empty and loose. You don't watch uh, Search Party, do you? I, I am about five episodes in. I really enjoy it. One of the characters uh, shits himself in uh, season two. Oh. Uh, like out in public, he's like, oh my God, I'm shitting myself. It's happening right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. I really. It's, um, Elliot. Elliot does, of course. I, I was going to say, yeah, that he was definitely going to be my guest. <laughs> I'm really enjoying it. I'm very into it. I'm a fool for waiting so long to watch it. Well, it's a really fun mystery in the first season. Yeah. I like they I have just, like a little Nancy Drew sleuthing to do. Yeah, I just watched Kinda the fun. one where they uh they uh went to the cult, which I enjoyed a lot. Yeah, that was a good one. They're <laughs> all sitting at the meal and everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're they're just so into themselves. I love it. Yeah, it's Such great. A perfect millennial yeah. Brooklyn yeah. <laughs> uh, show. But this week we're getting back into uh the book. Uh we ended last time um, with 9-11, and so this is pretty much what happened just in the year immediately following 9-11. Most of these stories uh, are coming from that time period, 2001, 2002, 2003, huh? Sorry, was that a question? <laughs> no, I was, I was looking for confirmation, at least. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, true. you are correct. <laughs> that is yes. The the years following nine eleven. <laughs> Good job, Jer. Thank you. I'll, I'll I'll remember to actually ask a question instead of just a, a leading statement. I mean, I feel like I should have realized what was going on there. I was leaning over trying to look at my book. I have my setup is just terrible right now. Like this isn't smoothing out at all. Like I was hoping for when I talked about at the very <laughs> beginning. <laughs> I have a book sitting on top of like a pile of dirty clothes inside the laundry basket. I can't really see it from here. So I was kind of like looking over <laughs> at it. And then I realized that you had stopped talking. I was like, Oh, no. What's the right next to your microphone? Why can't you just set it right there? That's where I have mine. There's not room on my, well, there is room on my desk, but I feel like if I have this like 50 pound book, sitting next to me and I try and flip pages it's gonna sound shitty so I wanted to put it on a different ah, surface I see what you're saying that's that's nice either way it's not gonna be good <laughs> <laughs> um, all right so when we last left our 
characters. The the strokes were just starting to kind of uh, get a foothold. We met the yeah yeah yeahs. The Interpol um, Interpol was Interpol was forming. And uh, this is kind of the continuation of all of those bands through their kind of first album, wouldn't you say? I would say. See, there you go. You, you, there, you there prompted you go. me. You did, prompted me. Perfect. A, yeah, We're back on go. track. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would Smooth. say. Smooth. <laughs> and, uh, and so this is um, the first show, Chapter 31. This is the first show um, in a big venue for... Uh, the Strokes, uh, the Hammerstein, yes, Hammerstein, Hammerstein. Where is this? Do you, are you familiar with the Hammerstein? Have you been there? Um, I am almost positive it doesn't exist anymore. Okay, so no on both of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I don't. I'm, I'm thinking Manhattan, obviously, right? Yeah, it's definitely a Manhattan, probably like Lower East Side or East Village or something. Mm-hmm. I should have looked this up. I did not. No worries, no worries. So Moby kind of gets into what they thought was going to happen, and they said, it's it's done, it's just going to go back to the way it used to be, dirty, scary, and empty. Uh, but 9-11 focused the world's attention on New York in a weird way. It really boosted tourism. Suddenly, more and more people were coming to New York, New York and being surprised at how much they liked it. Uh, so they, this is the kind of the bump that I was talking about in uh, the intro, is that... Uh, instead of kind of falling into disrepute, there was this kind of um, national and, and almost kind of uh, across the Western world, this kind of um, uh, sympathy for New York for sure. But they there was a charm about it now. Mm-hmm. Like people wanted to come and uh, and experience uh experience that like the magic that they thought uh was there yeah and like even like i think probably on a subconscious level too like new york was just like in your brain all the time right around then mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah for sure well and i remember that the the yankees were winning too and they actually um referenced this kind of briefly and somebody was watching uh, uh the yankees in the world series yeah um just after 9/11 and um I remember that too is that everyone was kind of like pulling for the Yankees. I remember sitting there watching and like wanting the Yankees to win, which is such a bizarre thought. Now. It was so weird and I was actually like paying attention to baseball at that point in my life too and it's so weird that like the country uh-huh. was like behind the Yankees. Unthinkable. They were playing the Diamondbacks in the World Series. Yeah. Yeah, nice nondescript kind yeah. of enemy that you can... And they kept coming back, right? Is that the series they kept coming back with, like, I be- late homers? I believe so. I know it went to Game 7. I remember watching it, and the Yankees lost. Not, not uh, a fairy tale ending. Yeah, but there was. There was a lot of um, polling for the, for the Yankees at the end. And before that, I think they had already won a couple of... Um, World Series by then, right? That yeah, that was had... that late '90s run that they had. Yeah, and so I remember hating them when they were on sure. that run, and then pulling for them all of a sudden after this. But um, is this it? Finally came out in America um, that October, and uh, so this is mere months after, and pretty much uh, 
Jason Gordon. People wanted to look at New York. They wanted to celebrate New York, and the Strokes were at the center of, of that. Here was this true New York band. Yeah, and it's it's like interesting. Like when you read all these details, whether it's the Strokes or whoever else, like all of these insane factors that go in to making someone popular, like all these coincidences that have to happen. Mm-hmm. It's fucking crazy. It is. It is. And it, it, it felt so like something that was so real and compared to, as Gideon Yago, Yago says, this new style of mod was a counterpoint to all that red-hatted, dreadlocked, limp biscuit, <laughs> bro bullshit that current mainstream rock and roll at the time. And it, it was. It felt something like authentic, you know? Yeah, and it like reading this, like thinking back, like, the rock music in like the late nineties really was fucking horrible. Yeah. It was like that California punk blink one eighty two, And then it was that limp biscuity bro shit that they're talking about. Yeah. Somewhere, uh, I think this is in the next chapter. So I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I love that quote where the guy who was like working at spin says something along the lines of, uh, I guess I have to learn to like Coldplay because they're better than Limp Biscuit. What a sad state of affairs. <laughs> no, yeah, you have to resign yourself to being a Coldplay fan, yeah, Travis. That's the best you can well, do. Well, I mean, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like I was either listening to the popular stuff at that time or I was I we were we were going back a lot. Like I just listened to more of my old um Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, yeah, stuff from high school a lot more. The good '90s uh, shit, yeah, earlier. Yeah, and or I would go back to Led Zeppelin, or mm-hmm. you know, I think I was still kind of um, like discovering Radiohead then too. So it was, yeah, like, that makes sense. Uh, okay, Computer was still like on constant rotation in the early aughts because that was something yeah. still pretty new to me. But he's right. It was just a bunch of bullshit. The stuff on like MTV was just a bunch of bullshit. So bad, like Papa Roach, shit like that. <laughs> remember Papa Roach? Remember yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kimya Dawson from uh, Moldy Peaches. The Strokes became ambassadors, the embodiment of that leather jacket, denim, sunglasses, cool New York City in people's minds. That's New York City music. They're the new Velvet Underground. Right, they se- they did seem like so cool, and it's weird to think of a time really when people weren't dressing like that because it's like it's that's still like pr- they mm-hmm. still look cool now. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, I hope that style endures. That's what we we kind of still do that. I know. <laughs> Sans leather jacket. I've never owned a leather jacket. No, I haven't either. But I I definitely I do put th- in a. I do think um, it's very cool though. <laughs> I know, I never found the right one at a thrift store. I and I I was thinking people never set foot in a thrift store. I was like I set foot in a thrift store in the nineties. Oh, I know. Yeah, that's that's a quote good. from we, someone. Yeah. Yeah, we were. It was always t-shirts back then. We were buying mostly t-shirts. Yeah, at like the Goodwill and like the and the Salvation Army. That was the other place we get into. Yeah, you pick up like a, uh, like team like a beer league softball shirt from some obscure small town is fucking dope. <laughs> yeah. yeah love that shit but yeah dave gottlieb again uh september 11 did affect all of this greatly i mean for is this it to come out literally two weeks later it made it hard for all the people that wanted to be c- cynical about the strokes or to take shots of them instead it became about 
All right, this is an underdog. September 11 made Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and The Strokes and Interpool. It made them all underdogs because they became representative of something larger. And that kind of comes in later when people start being like, oh, these guys are fucking rich kids, (laughs) you know, and privileged and... They're just about being cool, you know, no one wrote any of their songs, but of course they wrote their songs and they worked really hard on them. But that, that kind of at first kind of got glossed over because they were in the, the upswing of the New York as an underdog story. Yeah. I like, uh, yeah, people were like jealous of them. And so they needed like a reason they're like, well, rich kids, fuck them. I like Paul Banks says a little later on in there too. He's like, they, uh, like everyone loves them, they'll steal your girlfriend, something like that. And I enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> it created a lot of tension. Yeah, but they were they were loved at first, and uh, so this Hammerstein thing—it's an epic night, um, and it was still like the Strokes were still New York's band, and Gideon Yago says yeah. six months later. A night like that could have never happened. Six months later, they didn't belong just to New York anymore. Yeah. yeah. All right, so on to third, uh, chapter 32, and this is also about the strokes. This first part is kind of um, all about the strokes, and uh, this section is kind of that transition for, like we were saying, that Hammerstein show was like kind of the beginning of the end, or the, the pinnacle and the end of strokes being just a New York City band. Yeah, they were like the just the local band anymore. Yeah, and so this chapter is entitled "Is Anybody Outside of New York Talking About This?" and, and it's basically the story of um, how Rolling Stone and Spin started to pay attention to uh, the Strokes. Yeah. And this is the one that has uh, Mark Spitz saying, uh, Alan Light had been editing Spin, and I was still in the frame of mind of, all right, well, I guess I have to learn to like Coldplay because they're better than Limp Biscuit. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, I bet she was feeling pretty yellow about that. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so there's kind of this battle between Spin and Rolling Stone to see who was going to kind of blink first, but also discover them first. It was kind of a weird thing. Yeah. And it's interesting, like at this time, I kind of remember it too, but I haven't thought about it for a while. But like Spin was like, the, at least they thought of themselves as like the cooler, more underground, like popular yeah. music publication. Uh, yeah, exactly. I don't know who said it, but they're like, if anyone should break the story, it should be Spin, you know? Yeah. Because this was our kind of band, not the Fuddy Duddies over at Rolling Stone. Yeah. Which seemed to be the kind of the the difference uh, between the two. Yeah, like uh, Austin Skagg says, sometimes at Rolling Stones, you've got to get beaten over the head with <laughs> what's going on to eventually pay attention to it. Yeah, which still seems like the case. What's weird to me is that Spin was like, like in today's context, was viewed as like the hip publication. Because like, who who reads Spin now? I mean, I know we do yeah. for <laughs> podcast stuff, but like the fact that that was like the cool music source at the time is funny. Here it is. Uh, 
Tracy Pepper. We were so competitive with Rolling Stone. A band like The Strokes belonged in spin first, not Stone. Our readers were their audience, not Rolling Stone's baby boomer readers. I love that. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> I was friends with a lot of the editors at Rolling Stone and liked them as people, but I wanted to crush them professionally. What's interesting about that, because after um, 9-11, it's December, they're having their Christmas party, and uh, Mark Spitz recounts this um, uh, story about how at Spin... Uh, they were naming U2 Band of the Year, and that seems like a very Rolling Stones thing to do. I, I know, doesn't it? Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, Rolling Stone named them Band of the Year, like, this year. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, what were they doing? Why did that? Unbelievable. Oh. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it just, it, it that seemed like their moment where you could say, I, we, we could we could name a New York band and really kind of put a point on this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like they're trying to make like a very safe choice for whatever reason. Yeah. Oh, here it is. He's going on. We're at the Christmas party and I said to Alan, God himself opened up the skies, part of the heavens and handed us, us meaning spin and us meaning New York after nine 11, this fucking band. This is the band of the year. What the fuck are you doing? Putting you two on the cover <laughs> as the band of the year. You two are not the band of the year this year. This is not 1987. <laughs> this is 2001. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And again, like thinking about it now, like it does sound like such a rolling stone thing to do. Yeah. I mean, hindsight's 2020, but, Sure. I mean, looking back on it, they would have been, it would have been like, oh my God, I just remember that spin cover <laughs> yeah. from right after 9-11. It was like Strokes, Band of the Year. And it would have been like this iconic cover. Yeah. That people would have remembered, like they remember Stones covers from back in the day. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I thought was interesting from uh, this one is that the um, the Strokes um, article was in... A Julia Stiles, uh, so Jenny's piece ran in the issue with Julia Stiles' face, and then a headline above that something like Tina Fey, The Strokes, uh, Quest Love. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> As the up and coming cool things. Yeah. The next big things in 2001. <laughs> I remember Julia Stiles. <laughs> you right? <laughs> but yeah, what a time. What Tina is- Fey, The Strokes, Julia Stiles, Quest Love. <laughs> <laughs> Shit was popping off. Oh, and the origin of Cemetery by Muse. That's that was one of the alternate uh, picks for Band of the Year. Oh yeah, that guy says he still stands by it. Did you ever get yeah. into Muse? I always thought they were kind of douchey. Uh, a little bit, a little bit. They are a little douchey, but sometimes I like douchey music. Yeah, that's fair. Matt Bellamy, the he was like a cooler version of Chris Martin. I feel like. Yeah, which I was is not say, saying I, I, a lot, but. <laughs> I listened to them around when I listened to Coldplay too, which yeah. I, I enjoyed the first two albums of Coldplay. What were those called? At least. Parachutes. Um, that was one of them, right? Or was that later? And, oh, I can see the cover in my mind. It's got the scientist on it. Oh, a rush of blood to the head. A rush of blood to the head. There you go. God, I hate that shit so fucking yeah. much. <laughs> Is that too long for you? No, I just I, I don't care about the title. I hate that fucking album. Oh, I like that album. Oh, that, that was about it for them. 
Yeah. <laughs> their, their, oh, even though pinnacle. I hated it, that was their pinnacle. <laughs> and, they, and they're still around today. Are they still making albums? Yeah, they made, they made some unlistenable song with some like hip hop adjacent person recently. That's just the worst fucking garbage you'll ever hear. I don't know if they're making albums anymore, but they're still around. That's impressive. Well, I mean, like live is still around, but they're just kind of still peddling sure. throwing copper, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, is that where Coldplay is now? They're just kind of doing their hits and then I, people will sit through the bullshit that they're coming out with now. I, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Sorry if anyone likes Coldplay. I'm not sorry. No, I'm like sorry for them. If anyone, if <laughs> Excellent. All right. So on to chapter 33, this is, uh, I kind of, um, summarize this section as a celebrity fandom and starting to tour nationally. Uh, and they say the cats started to get out of the bag mm-hmm. as it were. And, uh, Mark Spitz says, you know how they say black flag got in a van and they brought punk rock to the world. The strokes got on a bus and they brought downtown cool to the world. Super cool. Super cool. Skinny jeans, leather jacket. They were the aughts. The hipster look of the aughts. And that, that'll come up kind of... Fashion will come up with all of these bands, interestingly. Uh, and, and fashion kind of did play a counterpart to their coolness, to their sound, their style. Yeah. So what were, the, what were, what were our popular people in culture wearing at this point? Was it the was it the the backwards red fitted hat of of Fred Durst? Yeah, so there were still two camps. All that Fubu shit was still pretty popular and popping off, and like so, the bigger stuff mm-hmm. was in oversized still. clothes. Oh, the oversized clothes was still in. Um, I think I was probably wearing like normal people in the middle of the country. We're wearing like boot cut type situations and jeans and mm. and uh, just flannels and sweaters and shit like that. T-shirts. Uh, I did go and get a lot. Of, I was still on the boot cut jean, but I, I definitely got a lot of um, vintage T-shirts. I liked my little vintage T-shirts that I could wear. And I was wearing uh, long sleeves underneath them, right? Oh, yes. Then? Oh, absolutely. So, I sometimes will still do that. Cargo pants were still okay. Yep. Uh, for sure. You, you could wear cargo pants, cargo shorts, uh, sandals. Remember you used to wear... I, I was thinking about this. Fucking the, flip-flops Dude, I shit. used to wear flip-flops all the time, and it's like such a weird thing to me now that, I, that anyone did that. That's a ridiculous thing to wear on your feet. It's I did insane. it all the time, too. Like driving... Yeah. And just like having to walk around dirty well, ass streets and stuff. I remember. Like there's no way I would wear flip flops now. I'm a, I am horrified anytime I see anyone wearing any type of sandal here in New York. What kind of diseases do you have on your toes now? Because you were right. wearing fucking flip flops <laughs> in the, I'm in lucky the most still... populated city in the North America. Right? Like these people are lucky they still have toes. I know. That's ridiculous. I remember when I would drive, I would take the flip-flops off and go barefoot. 
Because I feel like they'd get yeah. caught on the pedals, which seemed kind of hazardous. That's definitely a better you know? situation. If you have to drive, I would definitely drive without them because, yeah, I always felt like sometimes they would slip. Right, or they, or in like the transition of the brake. Yeah, or you take your foot off the brake or something, and the flip flop would get caught on it. Exactly. Yeah, and you're trying to move. Yeah, move over. Yeah, you got to go barefoot, vice, which I vice think. Versa. If I'm not mistaken, driving barefoot is technically illegal, which I don't I think understand. It is illegal. I feel like you can feel the pedals better. It's like running barefoot. You know, well, weird. Ultimately, we're animals. We should be able to do anything barefoot. Yeah. You can't even walk into a store. I mean, it's your it's your prerogative. Why do we give a shit if somebody walks into your store barefoot? <laughs> they're dumbass that's getting diseases on their feet. You know what that is? That's probably a poor person thing, isn't it? I don't want your poor dirty ass in here. <laughs> it's a like, it's that's, a class that's issue. Yeah, it's a class issue. That's what they're trying to prevent. They don't want to seem like a, a poor establishment where people walk around with no shoes. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem to bother me. It's not a health issue. They're all the way down at the bottom. Right. <laughs> not putting my foot in my mouth. <laughs> no, figuratively, not literally. Right. <laughs> so actually, the, the shitty press does start to come in and uh, start to say that you know, he's John Casablanca's kid and they don't have any talent and they're rich prep school kids mm-hmm. uh, kind of getting all this unfair press. And it's interesting that that the little, the bump of New York kind of wore off and then uh, they played Saturday Night Live and, you know, they're the talk of the town. I remember, like, oh, I... Okay, pump the brakes here, guys. I watched that episode of Saturday Night Live when it first aired. Ooh. And I was like, I was there. I was we'll that <laughs> later with DFA. <laughs> I was there on my couch in small uh-huh. town Colorado. It's like your own can festival. I did, yeah, my very own can festival. Um, but I was like, oh man. I remember thinking, I was like, these guys are fucking cool. I, I don't know if I was even that into the music or whatever, but I was like, they, they're so cool. They are very cool, and and uh, they started to to pick up on the other cool people uh, in the area. They after that show, they started hanging out with David Cross, Horatio Sands, Jimmy Fallon. They were all popping off at that time. Remember, they were still on Saturday Night Live. Uh, uh, well, David Cross was from uh, Mr. Show, but the rest yes. Of did the- you watch Mr. Show? Um, no, I have uh, in the last like few years, but n- not then. No, I was not familiar with it either. He just he just lived in New York, and so he was yeah. accessible to them. There was a couple of funny stories about him as well. Oh my God! Yes, <laughs> they uh, another Albert Hammond Jr. Uh, randomness <laughs> that he just kind of liked it and found it funny to kiss men. So he would just yeah. make out with people. Yeah, he would make like made out with Andy Dick at some party. Uh huh. It's very and David Cross said he kissed him right. He was like kind of well. A, he said that Julian kissed me. I was oh, like, "Whoa, what the fuck?" Okay, but also having a crazy rush of emotions because he's not gay, and I'm thinking, "Oh, what the fuck was up?" That was weird, but I guess it wasn't really unpleasant. <laughs> Something I'd ever do again, I think. Uh, that was interesting. It was my Bowie Mick Jagger moment. Did they kiss too? They had a whole thing with the uh, the uh, oh the you know the uh, Rolling Stones song Angie. Angie. Yep, that one. 
That's yeah. about David Bowie's wife at the time, which is creepy. Oh dear lord! I feel like there's some sort of. I'll ask Julie about this. She knows the whole story, but there's some sort of cheating oh, and or swinging sort of like, going on there. Ah, some sort of like E2 Mama Tambien. Yeah, kind of exactly. So I mean, they have a threesome, but then I'll also kind of start making out. Yeah, I think something a little like sword that, fighting. I think, yeah. <laughs> I also like that David Cross smoked meth with the Strokes. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? Hey, I got some glass. Some glass. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Catherine Pierce I was like what's glass that sounds pretty (laughs) like I knew they did a lot of drugs but crystal meth was not one I knew that they ever did Uh, it was funny and uh, they had the he opened for them at the 2001 um, New Year's Eve party at the Apollo that blew my mind I just can't even imagine this scenario I know it sounded like it went really awful. <laughs> he and said it was one of the worst nights of his life. David Cross just turned around and said, "Well, I have to be up here for forty-five minutes because that's what I'm booked for." Yeah. <laughs> Did he not tell jokes? Did he just say, "Well, I guess I'm up here"? I like I don't know. And like, it, just the idea of a comedian opening for bands in general is weird to me. But like, it's at the Apollo. Like, that's oh, that sounds very yeah. uncomfortable. It, he hit, it, he hit the nail on the head. It was New Year's Eve and I wasn't billed. It just said special guest. So nobody really knew I was going to do this. Everyone is timing their night out. I'm going to get fucked up and I'm going to come to the show and then I'll go see the strokes and guided by voices. No, sorry. First, you have to sit through 45 minutes of a guy who thinks he's funny. <laughs> and so that is so true that you're really trying to time everything out so that you're peaking when your favorite band is playing. Yeah. <laughs> and that extra 45 minutes was not calculated by the vast majority of people going to that show understandably <laughs> and now they're pissed because <laughs> they're going to be on the come down by the time guided by voices gets on well and like wouldn't it be safe to assume if you're going to a new year's concert with like the strokes and guided by voices that special guest would be a band another band yeah you just think okay probably maybe some local band yeah that'd be cool <laughs> Maybe the Smoldy Peaches, they always come wherever yeah. the strokes go. <laughs> Who was in charge of that? It's ridiculous. So they, they hang out with those guys, and then they go to Coachella, and, and, and shit is like spinning on this tour. But they get to Coachella, Coachella excuse me, and uh, Drew Barrymore... <laughs> latches on to them she kind of seeks him out just yeah i feel like she was just like i'm gonna date this guy for yeah a while, i was like it just, that was cool. just the decision <laughs> yeah so she just kind of like sought him out and said here here you go here's some flowers yeah and then they dated for a little while him five, and Fabs. five years jesus are you si- i didn't know it was that long yeah it's bizarre. I, I, had, I had never heard that before I read this. Was it really five years? I think that's what it says. Well, I'll believe you. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you should believe me, but I, <laughs> I think I'm right. <laughs> Actresses dating um, guys in bands. Such a classic bad move. It is. Got your Mandy Moores. Got your Drew Barry Moores. Lots of uh, lots of Moores. And then uh, Courtney Love. She dated 
the guy from Counting Crows for a while. I'm sure there's a lot more instances, but it's just a bad idea. Wait, Courtney Love dated Adam Duritz? Duritz, yeah. Ooh. There it is. I know. That's what I, we've talked about this before on the pod, but that's what Long December is about. Everyone knows that. Oh, well, yeah, you probably literally told me. everyone knows literally. that. <laughs> well, I don't. I'm sure I'll forget this by the next time we record. You can tell me again. But it's no good. It's no good when the actresses start showing up. Shit goes off the rails. Yeah, the actresses, the models, it's all trouble. Mm-hmm. It's only a matter of time, and it'll 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 get to that that point in chapter thirty-seven when we'll get there. But uh, for now, things are flying high. Dating the celebs, doing glass with David Cross, <laughs> making out with dudes, making out with dudes, showing your balls to people. It's the dream. It's a great time living the living the dream. <laughs> Okay, so in chapter 34, uh, we get reintroduced to the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. And they were just forming, having a show with uh, opening for... Um, the White Stripes. The White Stripes, randomly. And they had to get Brian up from uh, Oberlin to do that show. Mm-hmm. So now they're a band. They're working on their first EP, having their first shows, um, and picking up a lot of buzz in this time after the 9-11 when people were looking for bands like this I, after the 9-11. I think like, that, oh. that, that's that's one of my favorite thes that you've ever done, <laughs> the 9-11. That's terrific. <laughs> Sorry if that... Never forget where I was on the 9-11. Neither will I. <laughs> Absolutely. Remember that shit. So the the interesting thing, the most interesting thing about this first part of this was um, their show uh, for Vice. It was this weird fashion Vice thing. It was like the fifth anniversary of Vice, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, apparently there was a lot of fashion involved Mm -hmm. in it. David Cross said, I think it was at Wet. That's one of my favorite parts. I think it was at this place called Wet. It was actually it was a place called Spa. That made I had to like stop reading because I laughed so much at that. That's such a funny. Uh, it's just such. There's got to be a dance club called Wet, right? I mean, Absolutely. or should we we got to open it if it doesn't exist. Yeah. Oh my god, Wet. <laughs> oh my god, oh my god. Back to the laundry, laundry dance club, Wet. Oh. Well, it was a laundry bar, but yes. I know we're doing laundry dance club. Okay. Yeah, we're evolving. Yeah, because you could put the bubbles. Yes. You could put the fucking bubbles on the on the dance floor. That, yeah, like, like a they foam do. Party. They have bubble night. Foam party. Yeah, foam party. Mm-hmm. I think that we talked about foam parties the first time we discussed the yeah. laundry bar. But yes, I'm just saying if you're high on some shit, ecstasy, some <laughs> sort of like EDM music is playing, and the black lights are going. And you're watching the spin cycle of wash. It would be glorious. That would be, yeah, that would be the pinnacle. You'd peak there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At wet. At o- wet. Opening in 2019. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Get washed at wet. Oh, tagline. <laughs> Very good. We'll work on it. 
with this vice party. The funny thing is that the AAS played for four hundred, and then their food budget for McDonald's was seven fifty or uh, seven hundred and fifty. How awesome is that? That they had. Well, they're saying that McDonald's catered it, but they actually just sent some interns to buy fuck tons of McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> they just put the, like the McDonald's arches on like the the flyers or whatever it was. <laughs> so I was indirectly responsible for the fifty piece nugget. You wait what at McDonald's? Uh, <laughs> explain. So I had a buddy in high school. I had like two, three friends that worked at McDonald's. Uh-huh. Um, in high school. So this would have been 96, 97, 98. Uh-huh. And uh, McDonald's are franchises, but they're privately owned so that you can kind of like do different shit at your franchise. You know, yeah. it's always the participating McDonald's, right? Yeah, like at participating locations. Is exactly. What the ads so say, you yeah. can, you're, you're a franchise, you can choose whether or not to participate. And you can also make shit up on your own, apparently. Mm. And so they were asking for ideas and promos for around Super Bowl one year. Yes. And my buddy was telling me about this and I was like, I was like, dude, why don't they sell like 50 piece, hundred piece nuggets? I'd buy that shit. Fucking put it out on a platter for my, uh, Super Bowl party. Hell yes. He's, Cause they're at, at that point, I think we, um, that's what it was. They, they had come out with, <laughs> And this is hilarious. I don't know if this still exists or not. I think it's a double meal. They make it a double meal, but they used to sell like at limited times. They would sell the twenty piece nugget in just a value meal. Oh yeah, yeah. So it came with a large Coke and a yeah. and a large <laughs> fry for like five six bucks back then. Yeah. <laughs> so we got into eating those at lunchtime. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's almost like kind of like a food challenge in the middle of yes, your day. Exactly. It's great. Spice spice up your day a little bit. <laughs> spice up your day. And so I, I it kind of snowballed from there. I was like, dude, you should tell them to have like fifty and a hundred piece nugget platters. Yes. For uh, the Super Bowl. So they did they did that promo around that. And now that now they Now it's uh, almost McDonald's like ubiquitous has catering now. Pretty much everywhere. Well, that fifty-piece nuggets. 50 to 100. Yeah, they'll they'll run the specials. They'll advertise it. Fifty-piece mm-hmm. nuggets for like nine ninety-nine or whatever. Yep, I came up with that. That was me. Good job. That's your greatest <laughs> greatest contribution to culture. It's like when your dad says he uh, invented the blizzard. Yes. So it was one of my favorite stories. I know, and he was just blending up <laughs> fucking strawberries in. The soft serve at Dairy Queen. It's like, that's not a blizzard. That's a shake without milk. <laughs> What's what a blizzard, though? <laughs> like, I get I get what he's saying, it, but he didn't brand it. It's the branding of it that really... Well, and a blizzard is not... That's what makes something. Well, and something. a blizzard is like... It's not like an ingredient. Like, you make a strawberry... That's just... You're making strawberry ice cream, essentially. Blizzard is ice cream with, like, another, like, pre-existing... Candy. It's the candy thing. Yeah, it's the candy. Yeah. That's really what makes a blizzard. I agree. So, of course, uh, one of the things that they make a lot of stink about for the AAS is that it's being... um, Head head, uh, fronted by a woman. Yes. That that was the funny thing. What David Cross said again: "Holy fuck, these guys are amazing." And one of them was one of the Yeah Yeah Yeah's first show. They just blew me away. They were 
so good and so impressive. And as cliche as this sound, a breath of fresh air. This was so real and raw and heartfelt and organic with a sprinkling of importance. And she was a girl. Still is, in fact. <laughs> this is a good line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. It, it seemed like she was this person that, that said, I'm going to be rough and tumble and raw and be grabbing beers from the stage and stuff like that. But I'm also going to be very feminine and very yes. female at the same time. I'm going to be as aggressive and raw as the boys, but I'm not going to dress like a boy. I'm going to dress like a girl. Wear these crazy outfits, which we'll get into on the next one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I first got into them, too. It was, like, surprising to me just, like, hearing her lyrics. Because they're, like, obviously a bazillion, like, female artists and stuff before. But it just seemed like, lyrically and stuff, it, it, just, it sounded so surprising to hear them coming out of the mouth of a woman at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was really um, kind of, well, they called her PJ Harvey. You know, you think of uh, Patti Smith and people like that. Mm-hmm. I can't think of the other two that I had on my uh, brain. The woman that dated Jimmy Iovine. Oh, um, God damn it. She's in, from, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. from uh, oh, oh my God. Yeah, Landslide. Yeah, Julie's going to kill me for not remembering her name. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, there's a long line of them. Madonna. Yeah. She seems to be tapping into that for this area, this New York City revival of uh, kind of this Velvet Underground type rock music. Mm-hmm. Or underground, like kind of punk sort of yeah. slanted yeah. rock music. She was the, the female counterpart, which always seems to, there seems to be at least one that they let in with all the boys. Yeah. <laughs> I love the story about the first EP where it was on a cassette tape and he had put it through the laundry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Rob Sheffield is like, well, that makes sense because it sounds like you recorded this in a fucking dumpster. <laughs> Dude, we should record a podcast in a dumpster. Oh, let's do it. That'd like be as so a fun. bit. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Live. From Manhattan. Yeah, a Manhattan dumpster. dumpster. It'd be fantastic. <laughs> we get so much hipster cred for that. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so yeah, this is the uh, master EP, which is a really cool cover, where she yes. has that um, gold chain, mm-hmm. uh, kind of pimpin' style, where it just says master. Yeah, <laughs> coming around. It was very cool. Yeah, very feminine. She she started dating this guy from um, what's that place called? Liars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Had had you heard of Liars? Yes. They're, they're a band that I still, to this day, every once in a while, I'll be like, I need to get into them, and I go listen, and I'm like, eh, I can't really do it. No, just you can't get up on the liars? I can't get up on the liars. What do they sound like? Uh, I mean, kind of like all of these bands, in some sense, for this time. There's just something about it that I, 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 it doesn't grab me, but I've tried a few times. I really like the idea of a band just named Liars. It's not even the Liars. No. We're liars. Liars. It's cool. But I don't know. Thank you, Cleveland. <laughs> the thing that bothers me is that they're Australian and, and they just don't yeah, fuck they just Australia. don't even have to They just have to say, Sup. Yeah, mate. 
and like they get all the girls. Yeah, you just say that, and then and underwear is flying at the stage. I'm telling you, I don't know how Australians play in Australia, but they play very well here. Yeah. The other thing about this chapter is that they end up uh, heading to South by Southwest, and a couple other bands head to South by Southwest too. Doesn't DFA and Rapture end up there too? Yeah, I was that. Yeah, that's a funny story coming later, involving extreme drug use. <laughs> yeah, so they pick up a um, manager, Asif Ahmed, who seems to be patentedly crazy. Uh, one of then... one of countless people that James Murphy hates, apparently. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he is so insane. Um, uh, but then uh, we'll pick up back up with them at South by Southwest, which is a pretty funny story as well. Yes. Okay, so uh, chapter 35 is uh, about Interpol. They come back in to the story here, and uh, they, they kind of set it up as this strokes versus interpol although they didn't have a rivalry right but it it does represent a very different sound than what the iaas and uh the strokes were kind of angling at yeah and for me like i didn't ever get into interpol so i I guess unknowingly i was on the strokes side of this yeah team strokes i was team Um, strokes i didn't know it no i i think i i was as well it his voice kind of reminded me of the system of a down guy and it, mm. it almost seemed put on to me. That was the right. the odd thing about Interpol for me when, when they first came onto the scene was that I was just like, is this guy doing a thing here? And then yeah. um, the other way that they were very different is that they all wore suits. Which also so, seems like a put on, but I, I mean, exactly. And so I was like, what are they doing? They, yeah. It, I just felt like that the other bands were were so raw and real, mm-hmm. and they were just showing up to the gigs exactly how they dress, yeah, all the time, just in their normal life. And and these guys were were kind of uh, putting on a, a a show for me in in a way that a little off putting at that time. We were looking for something very real, you know. We were looking for something very authentic, right. Yeah, it seemed like and, the Strokes and like yeah, 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 were just like, these are cool people who happen to make music and look this way. Whereas Interpol seemed like it was just so planned. Yeah, exactly, and and I think that they were actually probably more thoughtful musicians. Yeah, um, and it seemed like that was maybe uh, what took them a while to break in. It was that their sound was so unique and mm-hmm. different and so polished uh, and so particular that it actually took them quite a while to get in. They were kind of hounding uh, every single label, rejected them, and they said even Matador, which is kind of a shot at Matador. Yes. I guess that was <laughs> like everyone signs a Matador. Come on, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so you know, to, to think that the Interpol couldn't get signed was at, – at now it seems – really odd yeah i mean well no you're you're right brian long says stylistically they were so far from what was considered cool the 80s were not considered cool at that time is that kind of like a reference to 80s like joy division because they i mean they didn't really sound like 80s like 
pop like what was popular mainstream 80s yeah the, me. the way i took that is the is again like their like presentation as as like more almost more of an act than a band mm-hmm. right like okay. kind of like yeah. that like david byrne talking heads kind of thing that's how okay. i interpreted yeah. that. well they, he does have that low voice Mm-hmm. That, yeah, like that mon- sense, kind then. of monotone. Mm-hmm. I do feel like they're a band that I need to revisit because they didn't strike me at the time, but people speak so highly of them, like in this book, and just always. I I, I just feel like I need to go back because I, I feel like I missed something. I don't know if I'm going to get it now, but it just felt like it it uh, provided an alternative for those people that were kind of disgusted with the Strokes' cool too cool for school yeah kind of look you know maybe the 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 basement dwellers the internet users of the of the day <laughs> uh this was this was their jam yeah the strokes were getting played at all of the uh cool parties with the football players and shit like that and right <laughs> they had this their own you know on um i don't know dungeon and dragons night or something yeah, almost like, almost like an instant, like sort of backlash to this extreme coolness is this mm-hmm. like very planned out uncoolness. Yeah, no, they. I mean, they look like three FBI agents from like the 1950s or something. You know, like they're right. It's like it's like they're my, working a beat. It's like countercultural. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Let me say that again. Countercultural. <laughs> oh my god, I can't say it. One more, one Ca- more time. Count. Third take, you always get it on the third take. <laughs> Counter culture on like a very micro level, just within this little scene that's happening. Well, Chris Lombardi, that's something that people didn't appreciate. People those days dressed in ripped t-shirts and grungy, not in the musical way. They were wearing that punked out vintage thrift story, iconic t-shirt type bullshit. Interpool dressed like rock stars. I mean, Carlos was this guy with a fucking armband on and his hair greased in a certain way wearing a fucking holster and smoking on stage <laughs> showing off his profile they called him Craftwork carl's uh, <laughs> carlos i love carlos carlos is kind of endearing in my heart now because yeah. they're all like uh, shut up carlos yeah, he took it well. <laughs> yeah. That, that's that's later when they're recording their album but <laughs> oh, the holster that's so good <laughs> He's kind of like the Meg um, from Family Guy of of Interpol, <laughs> just abused constantly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That guy's like, maybe we should put some drums right here. Fuck you, Carl. Shut the, <laughs> Shut the fuck up. And then, like, fifteen minutes later, hey, don't you think maybe some drums would work really well in here? <laughs> yeah. Carl's holding his hands up, fucking <laughs> yeah. holster around him. <laughs> <laughs> Put your cigarettes back in your holster and shut the fuck up. <laughs> Poor Carl. Seemed it seemed to be the the one that was kind of like pro uh chubby chicks and analog telephones, but also uh pro the suits and looking real rock star. Yeah. But, so I mean I guess looking real rock star that I don't know. That's a weird definition of it to me. I guess just in the sense that you're almost wearing a costume. Yeah, like old school rock star that yeah, I'm, real I'm old doing, this perf- <laughs> doing this performance, you know? Yeah. It, it is interesting because I, 
I do think that um, one of them says this, but they were like, we take this super fucking seriously. We were really, really dedicated to doing this and it took them a long time to break through. And so the, the black suits were kind of a, um, a symbol of that, that, mm-hmm. that they were very serious about what they're doing. Yeah. And which, which again, I think is, is just a put off to me. Like, I, I think that's why I eventually like fell out of love with Jack White. He just takes himself way too fucking seriously. It's like rock and roll should be fun. Yeah. Like, I mean, take your craft seriously, of course. Otherwise you probably won't be that good at it, but like, uh, I don't know. There's something very off putting about it. Yeah. Team strokes. Definitely. Then, I mean, that's, that's the whole thing that, that happened to both the AAS and the strokes is that it, it kind of became too much for them. And we're going to get a few stories here, uh, in the next couple of chapters about that. Yep. Okay. So chapter 36, we're back to the, yeah, yeah, yeahs. And like we said, uh, they were on their way to the South by Southwest tour. So at this point, They've got like nine songs. Right. Uh, and they haven't been signed yet, but there's this huge buzz about them. And they actually go from um, kind of being stuffed away in like a corner of South by Southwest to uh, La Zona Rosa, which is a, a larger venue mm-hmm. uh, and kind of a prime spot. Right. What gets brought up in, in this section that kind of goes with the uh, Karen O is a woman. Uh, from the last one doing a a woman thing in a man's world is that she adopts these outfits, these costumes yeah. <laughs> uh, for her um, for her live shows that kind of become a defining um, aspect of her whole entire perso- personality in terms of the band. Mm-hmm. And so do you not understand the relationship between her and Christian Joy, the person that makes all these costumes and kind of seems like some sort of weird friend that kind of gets in the way and, and helps the star make decisions, but you're just like, what the fuck is this person doing here? No, I, I don't understand the relationship at all. <laughs> uh, it, it's a very odd one because she's like, we're like brothers. She's my right hand man. I, mm-hmm. I, I run everything by her, but yet they like get into fist fights and stuff. Yeah. It's- uh, <laughs> reportedly. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I really don't understand the nature of the relationship at all. This whole thing was about basically coming up with like the ugliest costume that you could possibly imagine. Yeah, it's like this whole like for her. anti-fashion idea. Yeah, so all of the cool had to come from Karen O herself. That that's the the interesting part. And uh, a lot of uh, Karen O says a lot of uh, Christians costumes are really impractical to wear. My tit would pop out the side of it and I'd be trying to keep it up the whole time. It was kind of an ongoing fighting and struggling with each other. It was the opposite of worrying about, do I look pretty in it? I was a completely different planet from that kind of thinking. (laughs) But it seemed to be the, the kind of display of her sexuality and owning it on stage to not kind of defeminize herself and, right. and wear those skinny jeans and Chuck Taylor's uh, yeah. one of the women that worked for um, NME 
or, or another publication was responding to that thinking that, well, I'm in a man's world. I have to dress like a man. They, they, they'll, they won't know how to respond to me if I, if I'm like, um, a person, uh, that dresses in, uh, dresses and makeup and stuff like that. And is trying to like go, um, interview bands and stuff. I need to look like a, a man doing this, you know, and, and Karen O said the exact opposite. She's just, I, I'm in a man's position and I have the confidence uh, of a man in this position, you know, but I am owning it as a woman, not as a woman dressed like a man. Right. And that, and yeah, I, I think it, it was to me, it seems like she was going like the extreme opposite where it's like this, super like garish impractical outfits like almost like you'd see like on like a runway show where it's like that is the most impractical bizarre thing ever and she's up there doing this like crazy punk music that's like normally reserved for men and these super impractical like just insane outfits and it's so interesting the juxtaposition because at the beginning when they were talking about the Hammerstein um, uh, concert that uh, the Strokes gave, uh, somebody said they were up there and they didn't move. They were so cool. Mm-hmm. And there was this, <laughs> there was just kind of this entire backlash by Karen O uh, to this crazy debacle dancing, throwing yourself all over the stage mm-hmm. versus the too cool for school strokes that are just going to be up there and not moving at all. Yeah. And how I first got into the yeah, yeah, yeahs is um, I was hanging out with some, uh, our, our pal Drew in Denver when he still lived in the dorms at DU. Mm-hmm. This is when I still lived in Gunnison, the little, little mountain town. Um, uh-huh. And uh, his roommate and one of his friends were watching uh, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's concert DVD that I think was like a bootleg situation. <laughs> this was before like YouTube like had bazillions of like bootleg phone camera concert footage and everything. <laughs> and she was just so crazy. I was immediately hooked. That's why I went out and bought their uh, first albums. Cause I saw this concert footage where she was like, she like took this like giant swig off of this whiskey bottle and just spit it all over the crowd. It was so nice. fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. That, that just out of controlness that is. Yeah. That is so, um, sexy. It, it, there is this, it, it, to have this vibrant, ownership of who she was and Mm -hmm. her body and what she was wearing that that's the sexy part yeah absolutely it's not always the actual flesh and skin and bones Mm -hmm. it's 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 the way that you you carry yourself so much more yeah and it just seemed like watching that is just like so like rock and roll like i don't give a fuck it was just so alluring well, speaking of rock and roll, I don't give a fuck. One of the staples of a, uh, a truly rock and roll band is to tear the shit out of <laughs> the green rooms. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so, of course, the um, owner or uh, manager of La Zona Rosa tells them that he just decorated. 
recently. That's a mistake. (laughs) And they need to be very careful not to mess up anything in the green rooms. Like, was he new in the business? Like, I've never owned, like, any sort of property ever, but you don't, like, tell someone that. That's... (laughs) Challenge. (laughs) Right? It's a challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so... Uh, shit starts popping off with her and uh, Christian and then they get so drunk and they they steal the clinic's masks because they were gas masks. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then start running through the hallway acting as if they are the clinic and somewhere in the melee, Karen pushes Courtney Love right into uh, the, the craft food service table yeah <laughs> and and it supposedly says get out of my way you fucking biatch yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's all true says david burden she and she i don't in the book doesn't necessarily flatly deny it but she says she does not recall this happening right no, she she just says, I have no recollection of that. I mean, yeah. I never saw Courtney. Yeah. I don't believe she was there, but that's what people tell me. <laughs> I absolutely do remember trashing the dressing room. Though. <laughs> that was a window, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's very typical of being super blackout drunk is that you're like, I remember this, mm-hmm. and then I remember this. Yes. I don't know how I got from here to there. Yes, absolutely. Well, it was through Courtney Love. <laughs> yeah. That's how you got there. She was Courtney Love was between point A and point B. <laughs> you Alleg- say, Get the allegedly, fuck out of the way, bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really hope that did actually happen. I think it did. I mean, enough of people. I, I, I know that, there there are like several accounts of it. She's like the only one saying that they, that she doesn't remember it happening. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Kristen Joy says it happened. Dave Sitek. Uh, David, David Burton. Burton. Yep. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of people there. I think Nick Zinner even mm-hmm. was saying it did, too. <laughs> <laughs> but shit goes a little off the rails there. Uh, but they are absolutely popping off. And the next time we see them, uh, they'll be trying to sign a record deal and make their first record. Yeah. Okay, so chapter 37, we're back to the strokes. And this will be the final uh, strokes chapter that we'll do in this section and and this is where kind of things start falling apart for them uh all of the celebrities and the fandom and and the headlines uh start to kind of boil over into craziness and misbehaviors and missing sound checks and uh one uh harmar superstar says that uh, one night in uh, San Diego, Julian lost his voice, and uh, Steve Schlitz from the Long Wave had to sing the whole set. People got pissed. <laughs> yeah, this is like the classic band becoming super successful and just flying too close to the sun scenario. Yeah, exactly. Everyone gets, you know, just out of control, drunk all the time, and they're not taking care of themselves, and so they start losing their voices, and... Yeah, shows just and... all the drugs, all the women. It's it's a it's a classic rock and roll story. Yeah, as Harmar Superstar says again. Yeah, when you're a fashion icon and you're just reinvigorated all of rock music, you're like, well, I guess <laughs> I have to be that guy, Guns N' Roses party guy, right? Don't you do you feel like you would react in a similar way? I know it's hard to say, but. 
Absolutely. I know. I don't. I don't. I absolutely. Uh, I do not have the self control. If I got that much success and was like an icon, like I would go so far off the rails. The IIS experience too. It seems like shit starts to like become out of your control where people are just coming up to be like well we booked another 10 shows all right we booked this trip to Mm -hmm. um spain and you're gonna do uh you know five shows there and then stop over in norway and then head back here and just like all right all right all right yeah and so at some point in time i would get to the point where like no i'm not gonna do that anymore i'm fucking done (laughs) yeah absolutely you know because even though you're making all the money, you still kind of feel like a monkey boy because everyone's telling yep. you where to go. Yep. Yeah, I, I would definitely feel that. And I would be very much feeling like I have to go out there every night. I have to do this. And so that pressure of being like, okay, because one show, you'd feel like a top of the world. Two shows, three shows, you finally play the Hammerstein. You get to this pinnacle point and you're like, okay, this mm-hmm. is great. You know, you have this pinnacle moment in your life and you love this. But then to have to be in Omaha and Oklahoma City and then hit Salt Lake and then go out to Portland. And it's just like, oh, yeah. Well, and and like having some of your like defining moments as an artist be while you were like super fucked up. I, th- I feel like you probably start to think, well, yeah, I can continue to do that. Like, I I had one of my great live moments when I was blackout drunk, mm-hmm. and but <laughs> it's like that's probably <laughs> was just a, a like an apparition. Like, you can't not an apparition. That's a fucking ghost. Aberration. Aberration. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> Right, to like build some sort of false confidence in your ability to perform while super fucked up. It would. It would give you some sort of Superman powers you think you have. And uh, it would be to the point where you're like, yeah, that went well. And then they play yeah. the videotape back and you've been lying on the stage for like <laughs> yeah. 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, why didn't it go well that time? Just doing some sort of long form poetry. Yeah. <laughs> And so he, Julian, again, punches somebody. He broke my glasses. He fucked <laughs> up. I love that. <laughs> John calls me back and says, Julian just punched me in the face. He came back in the room. He said something to me. I told him something else. And he turned away. And then he turned back and slugged me in the face. <laughs> he broke my glasses. That sounds like when that... Uh, a candidate for like the Senate or something from fucking Wyoming or whatever punched that guy uh, in the face. Do you remember this? No. When the did the report? Wait, when the did reporter? this happen? It was a while ago. Like a while by post post Trump, but okay. like at the beginning. <laughs> oh yes, 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 yes. I do. And I you do heard it, this. and you, you could just see him. Yeah. Like come across, and then you heard all this rustling, and he's walking away, and all of a sudden goes, "You broke my glasses." <laughs> <laughs> the guy yells you out from broke my from the glasses. ground. You broke my glasses. What <laughs> <laughs> uh, a conservative punches a libtard in the face. The thing you hear is, you broke my glasses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's like in a fucking cowboy hat. He probably rode away on a damn horse or something. Yeah. <laughs> rode off into the sunset. <laughs> yeah, with his nine million guns. You broke my glasses. <laughs> now I can't do my reporting. Okay. 
<laughs> At least I can still listen to NPR in the morning. <laughs> yeah. And so Courtney, uh, Courtney Love comes back up again. She she brings Winona Ryder right after she was. Oh my god! Unbelievable! Do you remember that? What a duo! <laughs> <laughs> what a fucking duo! I do remember this. Yes. <laughs> oh, the mugshot. The. I love that shoplifting. <laughs> it, it's an addiction. It's an addiction. <laughs> it's a Don't disease. Blame her. We gotta treat it like a disease. How fucked how fucked would that be? You're sitting in your um dressing room or whatever. Courtney Love comes up to you. Used to be married. Married? <laughs> to Yeah, yeah. To uh Kurt Cobain. Kurt right? Cobain, yeah. yeah. Uh with Winona Reiner, who the I, I the whole time I'd be like, What the fuck is Winona Reiner doing here? Well, at that point, like, I, I would not I mean, be able to let it go. If I was Why in the you here? position of the, these people that it happened to, I'd be like, wait a minute. Am I hallucinating on drugs right now? Or <laughs> are Winona Ryder and Courtney Love in my face right now? This is, I'm having a bad trip. <laughs> but then to get lectured like she was to Julian and saying, this is your bleach, your next rest, your next record has to be never mind. Right. Oh my God. I think I would have broken her glasses. <laughs> like, fuck off. I am no Kurt Cobain. Like right? that is so much pressure. Yeah, that's an insane thing to say to someone. It's not very nice. It's not very nice, Courtney Love. I hope you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it just felt like she was kind of thirsty at this time, like trying to get back into it. Yes. Trying to find Absolutely. a way back in. I don't remember at all but i do remember like every once in a while like courtney love would kind of like pop back up oh absolutely it it would usually be something scandalous she would be trying to kind of you know come back and it never really worked for her she had no talent she like the, the hole was terrible i thought hole was terrible i'm with you i don't know if that's a popular opinion but i, I don't hole's not good i don't know if that's a hot take but she's she's definitely the uh Hillary Clinton of the you know, <laughs> fem- female rock movement. Uh, that's the best thing you've said in this six-hour <laughs> recording session. <laughs> I love Albert Hammond Jr. being like, what the fuck are these famous people coming up to me? And he's like, uh, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh, I don't care. If they said Lou Reed came up to your show and wants to speak to you, I would sit down and gladly listen to him for hours. But why not to Reiner and Courtney Love? Fuck off. <laughs> I'm definitely team Albert Hammond Jr. I love He's him. great. What a, what a great character he is. <laughs> Kissing men, showing his balls. Yeah. Telling Courtney Love and why not Reiner to fuck off. He like is he a should. delight. He is such a delight. Oh, uh, I'd be so annoyed with these, like, fucking... B-roll actors and actresses and, you know, celebrities coming up to me and be like, hey. Right? I would like to think I would, too. I, I mean, I don't I don't know what it's actually like That's to be That's the famous, one thing I would hope, that, yes. that they, they don't tell... I, I hope that I would be more like, get the fuck out of my way, bitch. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, Karen O. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shove her aside. <laughs> <laughs> We're the clinic. <laughs> Uh, so I love the Harmar superstar of, of things going off the rail where he is flying in this plane, the Cessna with his uh. friend, unpressurized Cessna. <laughs> yeah. And they got Kalanapin 
and he doesn't want him to give it to the Strokes. Yeah, he's like, don't give it to them. Is what brings it all down. Yeah, because they're on this whole entire national tour, and then by by. Uh, LA they've just been totally beat down and the Kaladipin was the last straw yeah <laughs> over the edge <laughs> which is so funny to me that it was like a prescription drug and meanwhile they've been like smoking meth with David Cross like this is, I know. This is the last straw is this fucking Kaladipin We've got Kalanapin. Have I been missing something? It was uh, Sarah takes it because she's scared of flying. Like, my, my inter- I, I know that's what I thought of too. I was like, oh, this is funny. This is happening on a plane since Sarah takes. Should it I be crushing this shit up and taking it to the dome? That's my I mean, that's my understanding. I'm like, I'm sure they all took like ten of them each at least, right? Like, yeah. But <laughs> how do we make this happen? Yeah, well, you I want can Albert make it Hammond. Happen. I want to Albert Hammond Jr. myself. <laughs> Show your balls to yourself. Make out with yourself. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So in the end, uh, as uh, Jane Merlis says, it was a combination uh, of just exhaustion, drugs, and sycophants. And that, that's really the, the downfall of every great rock band. Yes. <laughs> He just can't. That's keep what I'm saying. Lifestyle. It's the classic story. Yeah. It's the 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 rock band's journey. Like this, like some, <laughs> like Joseph Campbell's gonna have to come yeah. along and write this shit. Yeah, there should be some sort of alternate world. They'll do a they'll do a, a Star Wars spinoff. What if Luke Skywalker was just a drunken <laughs> fuck and he never actually yeah. left the cantina? He was. <laughs> <laughs> he well, he got like pretty famous, and then people started recognizing him in the canteen, and he started fighting uh-huh. people and abusing yeah. space drugs. I would watch that. He's just like, oh my god, we had one hit. <laughs> oh wait, maybe you leave maybe, me alone. Maybe maybe the rock star's journey is about the cantina musicians. The cantina band. Yeah, I like that. They got too big, I too like fast. <laughs> With their hit song. Do you song. think the cantina is their uh, Halloween sh- show at the Hammerstein? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Every, everyone was just like, dude after the cantina show it was yeah. like whoa fucking like, like we're rock stars now as soon it's as crazy. as soon as the first notes of ba 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 started playing we they they melted man they melted we just knew we had something there i'm just saying it was like we were in uh we were in the bedroom with Boba Fett and he was just kind of strumming on his guitar and it, like we had it. It was, and then the horns came in and, and it was just perfect. We uh, knew it there. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this, the, the strokes part of this uh, with Julian Casablancas. I mean, I never really thought about it, but that show is probably symbolic in a lot of ways. People were kind of becoming superstars and like not remembering the goal of being a great rock band. They were so focused, and now it seems like they lost a little focus. Yep. So chapter 38, it uh, finishes up Interpol for us. And I feel like they, they're not spending as much time on Interpol because there's not as many like great stories about them. They just kind of work hard and record a record. and But they're a very important band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is... Which is admirable in its own way. It's just not 
like <laughs> that like enrapturing as like storytelling i guess <laughs> yeah exactly so they end up uh going out to connecticut uh to peter caddis's home and that that seems like a really great place to be although carlos of course doesn't want to be there god damn it carlos <laughs> they uh they adopt the moniker shut the fuck up carlos and everyone seems to to like it <laughs> even carlos takes it in good stride he's always wanting to go back to the city because he likes the scene he likes to be yeah likes to be in the scene and and this kind of tranquil record in this 200 year old house out in connecticut you know, where you have your own bedroom and you're not living with a pile of garbage in the middle of <laughs> your <laughs> your apartment with uh, you don't, you don't you know, carve rat, your, rat traps. You don't carve your initials into plastic bowls. <laughs> yeah, know. it seems like a nice break. I, yeah. I would take it. I would... I I'm very much more. If I was in the if I was in a band, I would probably be in Interpol, not in strokes i i don't think i could live that life <laughs> right <laughs> so they go out and um it, it's interesting how um self-conscious that uh paul banks is about his baritone voice because that mm-hmm. seems to be a real defining characteristic of of interpol but he didn't really like it at first yeah i heard that recording of their uh PD, what is it? PDA. That's the one of the PDA. big songs. Yeah, that's the big. Yeah, that's the like, big it, first single. Yeah, he's like, he's like, that's that's not what my voice sounds like, but it's like the vo- <laughs> the voice that like defined the band. Yeah, it was almost as if he he was. Remember, he was uh, trying to yell over the the drums yes. in their uh, rehearsal space, mm-hmm. and then when he gets on like the fancy microphones and stuff like that, he's like, oh, I don't really like it anymore it sounds yeah. different yeah this way but um i i just don't think interpol would be interpol without that voice oh god no no that's the most that's the most distinct thing about them to me like as we've established i'm not a big interpol fan so i haven't really dove deep but it seems like the most distinctive thing to me yeah it's the voice and then the kind of the the shoegaze uh, you know, eighties, uh, talking heads kind of feeling that's not as raw as the, as the guitars on like strokes. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, the, those are the two big differences for me for sure. Yeah. So they recorded bright lights and that was mainly, uh, from the demos that they kept sending to Matador, <laughs> uh, <laughs> over and over again to, to finally get signed. Um, and, I think we yada yada that, but yeah, they, they did end up getting signed, uh, on that last one. And so the bright lights was the first, uh, record that they released, uh, on their deal there. And it really kind of, uh, solidified them, minted them as being a, 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 a major force in the New York city scene. And, and it, it, they're more associated with Brooklyn. We're starting to kind of edge towards Brooklyn here. And our next episode will probably be all Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. That was like the beginning of everything moving out of Manhattan. Because they were, they were not rich kids. And so they had to kind of move their space out to Brooklyn earlier Mm -hmm. uh, than everyone else just for financial reasons. Yeah. 
This is the same reason everyone moved from Manhattan to Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, eventually. You just get priced out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, that's about the end of um, Interpol for, for this section. And uh, coming up here, we'll get into DFA and Rapture. There we go. Back in our wheelhouse. <laughs> Sorry yeah. to any big Interpol fans. I, I, I respect <laughs> you. I see you. Yeah, no, they they are they're they're definitely that band that everyone respects but no one listens to. <laughs> I mean, that's been my experience. I don't know really any huge Interpol fans. Huge Interpol fans? No, I don't either. But you always read about them. Always, they seem very important. Yep, and Interpol. They're uh, always after the Oxford comma. <laughs> and when you're talking about New York City bands. <laughs> Who gives a fuck about an Oxford comma? <laughs> Shout out to Vampire Weekend. Will we get Boom! to those pe- Will we get to those guys? We will. Nice. Nice. We got a few years to go. We're like halfway through the book and we've only gotten into like the second <laughs> year of the aughts here. I'm a little worried. I'm a little worried, Lizzie Goodman. <laughs> Don't worry your pretty little head, Nate. <laughs> little bald head (laughs) i was gonna say that and i was like is that mean i don't know i still don't know how like uh, no i can be made fun of i'm okay with okay okay i don't know i don't i don't know what's a touchy subject i I feel like i would be touchy about baldness no nothing's off limits with me okay (laughs) you bald bitch (laughs) my balls are bald (laughs) <laughs> so, all right it checks out you're okay with it you passed the test <laughs> okay so uh chapter 39 we're back on uh dfa and if you remember last time we we uh talked about dfa the plant bar was opening <laughs> and and it's kind of being going to be the hub for the dfa uh side of of things and it really is kind of separate you know I, yeah. uh, james murphy at one point talks about knowing them and liking them but what they were doing and what they were about was uh, a completely different world from the strokes and the yeah and even interpol yes i mean i feel like it had to do with the the connection with british uh kind of dance music. Yeah, that was Tim that was the big difference is that that huge like dance influence and like club music, like house music. Mm-hmm. Like that that was like so far removed from the strokes and the IAS sound. So the the first and we talked about this a little bit on the last one, the 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 first big DFA uh contribution was uh to the rapture. Yes. Like James Murphy apparently like kind of like p- almost pinned his whole existence on these guys. It was it, it was really interesting going back and listening to House of Jealous Lovers. That was the big single that came out and everyone was putting on the decks. Everyone was kind of uh, all the DJs were yeah. were using it. And like we really have what... to have this vinyl of this song, the 12 inch. Exactly, and it was getting sold out in in New York City, and that was before you could just buy it on Amazon. But it it almost seems like that the Rapture got into dance music through DFA in this uh, Mm -hmm. DFA relationship. And this first album, when I I go back, the, the one where he's on the surfboard... 
Uh, yeah, uh, in, in the grace in of the your love. In the grace of your love. That was the one that I really connected with, but Echoes sounds yes. so much like James Murphy. Like, it, yes. it, it's almost a prequel to LCD Sound System. Exactly. So, House of Jealous Lovers, the single, they're talking here as as they make it about this cult of James, mm-hmm. where he has to have everything just right, and he kind of dominates the whole scene where he tells what kind of car to buy, I mean, the same therapist, yeah. <laughs> same haircut place, it was very interesting. Yeah, I, li- I like that little blurb from uh, Luke Jenner, the front man from The Rapture, where he's like, I didn't, I, he's like, I got my hair cut somewhere else. <laughs> Just so you know. He was a like, rebel. Everyone was getting their hair cut this place. I got my hair cut somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it wasn't about me. But everyone went to the same therapist. And fun little factoid that someone great is about this therapist that James Murphy had seen I, I have for 20 years. wondered for so long what that song was about. <laughs> this is amazing. This is such a revelation to me. This is almost like James Murphy's shaman. It, it, it's like his pastor, you know? Yeah. It, in, in this world where you're kind of privileged and... Uh, in Manhattan and have and, and seeing a therapist three times a week, yeah. which is absolutely ridiculous. You should not be thinking about yourself that much. Right. Well, and that's, I can't remember who says it, but there's that quote in there where it says, and it, <laughs> uh, seeing a therapist three times a week gives you a lot of ammunition. <laughs> yeah. A lot of weapons there. A lot of weapons. That's the quote. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, it's not about a love affair. It, uh, that was written the day that James therapist died. Unbelievable. That's, that's so hilarious. crazy. Like I never knew that before. And I, like I said, I've wondered about it for so long. Luke Jenner, the only places you were allowed to go DFA and plant bar and that place you got your haircut or the therapist. <laughs> that's that so, is so crazy. weird. James Murphy's insane. Yeah, very controlling, it seems like. Yeah. And and it's almost like, um, I I was thinking about this, where everything has to do with being cool in this book, right? We've established that. And there's different ways of being cool. Uh, Interpol did it with uh, being not skinny jeans and Chuck Taylors, but suits and yep. low baritone and stuff. And, um, strokes did it their way. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She had these weird costumes, but for James Murphy, Murphy, what it, what being cool is, is knowing all of the right stuff. Right. And so it's this intellectual yes. coolness, right? It's not about what you wear. Cause they go into that. It was like, Oh, he wasn't cool. He was wearing like these XL t-shirts and he's got this gray hair and he's his <laughs> front man. But what, what is cool for him is not, fashion but rather what you know intellect right which is very apparent on the next chapter about losing my edge like that's what that whole song is about yeah exactly it's not about not being cool it's just what kind of cool do you subscribe to 
Yeah, and you're and like what you perceive as cool, I think. Uh, and so they end up going to South by Southwest with the Rapture, <laughs> and that's kind of a watershed moment for James Murphy, where I feel like he thinks, okay, I can I can do this. This is something that that I can do. Yeah, and the it, LCD. <laughs> well, <and> is <laughs> it out like they they did like coke all night and then they're going to get on the plane with all these other New York yeah. artists and they feel like they need to come down so they take a bunch of quaaludes <laughs> yeah oh my god <laughs> oh, I love quaaludes t- t- Tim Goldsworthy talking about uh, there's <laughs> I forget the exact quote but he says something about like they were all coked up and then he took all these quaaludes and, and he <laughs> bought this giant breakfast. And he, he knew yeah. he was going to eat it. He's like, it's like, it looked like Stephen Hawking carrying this <laughs> breakfast around. He was dripping out of the box and he's just like walking around carrying this breakfast. <laughs> it was leaking all over him. Oh my God. <laughs> That's such a human moment. I feel like I could, yeah. I could be right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As the Rapture are recording this new album, uh, what will be Echoes, uh, which started with House of Jealous Lovers, James Murphy is starting to kind of gain steam in believing that he can can kind of do this and, and sees how uh, he can probably put all the pieces together just as easily as, as going and getting some sort of Rapture-type band to do it for him. Yes. And so... Um, it kind of ends with just as as quickly as it kind of gets started, things uh, uh, start to fall apart for uh, DFA and Rapture, and that'll be 41, chapter 41 when we get to it. Yes. Okay, so uh, chapter 40, this is kind of the story of the IAS signing to Interscope, and it's not super interesting other than... You know, they they had a lot of deals on the table and they really mm-hmm. kind of wanted to fashion a deal that was better for them and not just take the money up front, which I think is smart in yeah. the end. Yeah. Well, and Interscope ties back to our uh, Defiant Ones episode. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Iovine. Yeah. Jimmy Iovine comes up in this. And yeah. uh, Karen, oh, when we signed the deal to Interscope, I was just thinking out of all the majors, we chose the one with Marilyn Manson and Eminem and Dr. Dre. I don't know if she's saying that like sarcastically or mm-hmm. positively. I, th- I see it as a positive. Yeah, I would That's think so. That's the one too. you should choose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when in doubt, sign with those dudes. <laughs> definitely. Um, and the one reason that they did sign with them and it seemed like to be a, a reoccurring theme in Jimmy Iovine is that they were the ones that kind of allowed them to kind of do their own thing. They, mm-hmm. they wanted to, uh, they wanted to, uh, have the most flexible deal. And that's the one that, that uh, Interscope gave them, which kind of tracks with what we heard there. They just they, yeah, exactly. they signed great artists and they yep. let them do what they're supposed to do. Yeah, just run with it. That was like part of the appeal of signing there. That's like how they made their name. Uh, exactly. And, and uh, you know, there was kind of the struggle in them. But in the end, um, I think you had to take the deal, right? Yeah, Absolutely. So of course the the big song is uh, our time, the year to be hated, and uh, that's kind of uh, 
real relevant for uh, New Yorkers, where it's the year after yeah. this very tragic thing happened, and you're rebuilding, and you're trying to find your identity. It's mm-hmm. just a shit year. Same with 2017. <laughs> yeah. <and laughs> Trump, you know? I yeah. Mean, like, when something disastrous happens, like, <laughs> the next year is just, like, this kind of figuring shit out. It's just an awful slog fest. You just want it to be over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so chapter 41 uh, talks about the success of House of Jones lovers and then also the demise of the relationship between DFA and uh, Rapture. To Right at the beginning here, I thought it was really interesting uh, with our singles versus album uh, conversation from mm-hmm. a week ago. Uh, Luke Jenner, the classic rock thing was all about the album. To make the definitive statement, like Blonde on Blonde, rock is an album genre. A lot of post-punk is about this entire record sucks, and maybe your entire career sucks, but you have this one awesome song. Uh, And then Andy Greenwald, that was one awesome song, finally came out in the spring of 2002, Rob Sheffield. It was the dance music that attracted a rock audience. The way it combined those two things was really startling. So this dance music hybrid of indie rock was bringing the single to rock music. Yes. And, And I feel like that's something we've talked about and also something I've thought a lot about like LCD sound system is they were the band that brought those two things together for me. So it's mm-hmm. really interesting reading in the book that that actually came from somewhere else for James Murphy and probably people that were like listening to things actively back then. Yeah, it seems like dance music is ripe with singles. You know, this one great song that you love playing in the club and maybe that DJ or that band never produces anything else, but there is always this one song to kind of hang their hat on. And that's House of Jealous Lovers for Rapture, at least during the DFA era. Yeah. And and, and what I'm saying is I I thought this combination of the two genres came from lcd sound system but it it didn't Mm -mm. it came from the rapture and then james murphy was like well i can't control this guy i'm gonna have to do this myself which i didn't know before reading this yeah it it definitely came from the rapture and this was their music but do you feel like because uh um vito Roquefort or what's his name? <laughs> well, Vito Corleone. Well, yeah, yeah, Vito Corleone. <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, talking about, I think, in the last chapter that was on DFA about how um, the Rapture started getting into dance music through DFA. Right, and so it it does seem as if, and be, and because the Echoes album is so DFA mm-hmm. and so James Murphy, and then the rest of their catalog is less that. Yeah, it it does seem as if uh, James Murphy was kind of like forcing this, not forcing this on the Rapture, but had a major hand in the Rapture sounding like this. Yes, absolutely. 
all, all that to say is, is that it, it does seem to be somewhere in between. It wasn't like the Rapture came to DFA and said, we have this sound. No. Well, they had, Can like, you help us hone it? Yeah, they had like arguments about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, and, and that's the great thing about this book is that you see the beginnings of something where people are actually arguing about what a style, what a genre is going to be. Yes. In the end, like, like they didn't know they were creating a genre of music, but that's exactly what they were doing. And they were arguing about it because that's really fucking hard to do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I, and and I guess that was the, what I was trying to say is that, that's what James Murphy wanted him to do, and ultimately, that is what he had to do on his own mm-hmm. with LCD. Yeah, no, I, I I think, do we get LCD if the rapture stays with DFA? No, I don't think so. I don't think so either. Based on what I've read in this book, I don't think we do. I I, I think that he plays out all of his fantasies and all of the ways in which he wants to make music through the rapture and mm-hmm. through other bands. He finds ways to to express what would be LCD in other bands. Yes. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that's the case. Real sliding doors moment. It's very it's very interesting. Like I never like I, I love the rapture and I love their later stuff too, which they kinda like shit on in the book. Mm-hmm. Well well not they do. Not the book itself, but you know, people around. James Murphy does, yeah. James Murphy does. I I love it, but I didn't know how important the rapture was to what James Murphy would become before I read this. It's fucking incredible. Yeah, the rapture was his kind of like breeding ground for LCD. Yeah. All of the things in like the first, uh, right off the bat, House of Shelf Letters have that fucking cowbell that you can hear throughout. All of LCD. You're like, oh, yeah. yeah, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like House of Jealous Lovers, fucking great track. I love it. But you can hear like all, like almost everything that LCD became came out of that fucking song. It blows my mind. I never thought about it before. I just, before I always thought of it as, oh yeah, this is a great DFA track. This makes sense. I didn't know it was like the origin though. Exactly. And uh, here, here's the guy that I had, was trying to intimate towards earlier, is that Andy Weatherall is key. He had been through post-punk and had been through a lots of scenes, and then he became a DJ and a producer and worked with Primal Scream. He was a sort of gateway figure for this kind of rock indie side of things and the dance thing. He was one of the people that paved the way for DFA. He was uh, the guy that played... Uh, House of Jealous Lovers in England. Yes. And they were all just like, we did it. We're there. We've arrived. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> beers, beers for all my friends. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. All my friends. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, then the rapture sign, Asif. Asif Ahmed. Asif Ahmed uh, from the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and uh, TV on the radio. We haven't known that yet. And of course, uh, James Murphy wanted to break his jaw. Yeah, James Murphy hates him. <laughs> yeah, I know it all, which is really ripe coming from James Murphy. Well, I, I like his quote about James Murphy's quote about Asif is he was a know-it-all that didn't know anything. <laughs> One of those know-it-alls that didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah. 
<laughs> Which we've we we we've known a few of those in our life. I I can relate to that. But yeah, G- coming from James <laughs> Murphy, that's oh god, what a fucking lunatic. <laughs> so there, it gets really weird here, and it was it was a little difficult to follow. But basically, DFA are wanting to, as a whole entire record label, sign to another record label as their kind of distribution source. Yes, and uh, they're going to kind of which they haven't signed the Rapture yet, but they're going to kind of take the Rapture along to something mm-hmm. uh, and the Rapture balk at that and say, no, I don't really like that. I want to go with a, a, a big name, some somebody else, right? And yeah. that uh, even um, Luke Jenner himself kind of comes to... Uh, regret that they end up signing with the universal and he says signing your life and your artistic well-being away to someone who doesn't like music is not a good idea (laughs) i spent the next five years in meetings with people who didn't like music trying to tell them about acid house and in college i like dave matthews band i don't really buy music anymore but i had (laughs) an internship at college radio and now i work for here and i have my band i have your band in my hands that's not a good feeling (laughs) <laughs> so it, it was kind of this like um kind of a cautionary tale about signing with with big record labels yeah. and ruining that in the end dfa does end up producing that first house of jealous lovers track and also the echoes track and then somehow universal buys it from dfa yes uh the rights to it or something like that. So mm-hmm. they ended up making money in the end. DFA did. Yep. Uh, and, and that, that money actually was the propelling of LCD. He was able to yep. kind of use that money to, to do the LCD thing. Basically losing my edge was coming out of this period where he both, lost the rapture they kind of parted ways but then also he lost his mom and dad uh, yep. right before 9-11 and uh was he already married and then got a divorce but uh, he's single at this point right yeah i think so yeah so this kind of rough time for him yeah and then this explosion of uh creative power creative kind of uh, energy comes out and uh losing my edge beat connection yeah those are the first two yeah which i didn't know before like i knew that uh losing my edge was like the first like lcd song that got recognized but apparently he spent like way more time on beat connection Mm-hmm. he did kind like obsessed a, over it yeah like obsessed over it did like a bazillion takes on it but that was yeah, I mean that's that is what James Murphy needed to do, and that's why I'm happy that LCD is still around because he's like so obsessive and controlling. He just needs to do the shit himself. Like Absolutely. he's 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 abusive of people working for him, so he just <laughs> needs to do the shit himself if he's going to be so obsessive, and it's fucking great. So the next chapter is all about that first 12 inch and losing my edge before we move on. <laughs> did you have anything to say about the, uh, Britney Spears <laughs> track that they laid at some point in between losing the rapture and, and, uh, starting LCD I, sound system. They got a hold of Britney and she came in. 
Yeah, she studio, came in, laid some shit down. Well, it was funny to me. Like apparently, she like just brought in some cupcakes and ate the frosting off the cupcakes from. Oh, they were her cupcakes. The, it, yeah, it, that's such got, a chick she, move to do. She, she got the them frosting. from uh, Magnolia Bakery because sugar is like, fat free. <laughs> yeah. But it, it was it was cupcake frosting and Marlboro Lights. I think it said she came with her Starbucks and Marlboro Lights, as yeah. you will. <laughs> yeah, but Tried apparently she just track. ate the frosting off that shit. Mm-hmm. And like, I guess I think it was Tim Goldsworthy was like pretty pleased with how the song was sounding. The what I got the sense was like James Murphy was there, but he was just like sitting on the couch being depressed. Everyone said that it seemed to turn out fine, and, and uh, yeah. the record label even said it's a really good. I like it, but it's just too hip. It's funny. Yeah. There's like this, but there's this track out there. They still have it. There's this track. Right? With, I want to hear with it. With so Britney badly. Spears that that DFA produced. That's I know. insane. I, I want to hear it that. so bad. What the fuck does that sound like? Yeah, I can't even think about what that sounds like. <laughs> Me neither. I I hope you get to hear it at some point. Oh God! You think with the internet where they would just release everything, you know? Yeah. All right, so we got a couple more to do here. Chapter uh, forty-two is about, uh, like we said, the first twelve-inch beat connection and losing my ass. Jane Murphy realizes that he can do this on his own; doesn't need uh, the rapture, doesn't need a band to engineer. He says, I can play, I can engineer, I can sing and do all the instruments and I can't make something good from, if I can't make something good from all that, then tough shit for me. Yeah. I went to EMI and said, I have a band now. <laughs> He's like Corky Sinclair. He, he is like he Corky can act, Sinclair. He can dance, he can sing, <laughs> yeah. he can do it all. <laughs> Uh, he's the modern day Corky St. Clair. Yep. That's great. So the the first one was Beat Connection. Of course, that one gets uh, done and done and done to death. Yes. He recorded it over like 100 times or something ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, changing one thing, a tempo, a bass line, this or that. Uh, and then Losing My Edge was super quick. Uh Jonathan Galkin, it sort of came spilling out of him uh, as he was ranting into this tape recorder, which I think is right by my desk to this day. It was a mini cassette recorder. I love all these little like um, artifacts that they have. Yes. Like he ha- he still has the recorder that James Murphy recorded into on his desk, sitting there in the same place where he recorded it. Right. I I want like a meet me in the bathroom museum. I'd be so, right. I'd be enthralled by this. <laughs> There's like some like little ropes and then you see the yeah. the desk and the little recorder next to it. And maybe <laughs> yeah. There's like a wax figure of James Murphy in an XL t-shirt. <laughs> the, the interesting thing to me was that uh, Taylor Brody was saying an ex-girlfriend of mine brought Pharrell Williams to the show at the Rebecca Grand mm-hmm. and James met Pharrell. That's when he was like, I'm losing my edge to this kid. He was like, this guy knows what's up. I'd better get my shit together. Pharrell is the kid coming up from behind in losing my edge. Right. That is insane to think about. Mind blown. Mind blown. Yeah. That's one of the craziest revelations in this book to me so far. 
Yeah, I'm happy, as they say. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Reference. I'm happy. <laughs> exactly. It, it, it makes so much sense. He's a producer. He's definitely on the dance side of things. Like I can, and, and he's very, um, like well dressed, very curated. Everything mm. is like perfect about Pharrell. Yeah. And how, and his look and what he listens to. He's listening to all the coolest bands. He's doing all the cool things. That makes so much sense. Pharrell Williams. I know. <laughs> That's so crazy. Yeah, that was the big aha moment for this part. Andy Greenwald is uh, starting to come in, and he always has a great way uh, to talk about it. He talks about Losing My Edge as it, it's not this obnoxious and, in a way, funny music often in, but it is kind of like this sarcastic kind of thing, right? Yeah. And, I mean, but it's not um, Weird Al Yankovic funny music, you know? Yeah. Uh, the real trick is that it's hitting you while it's heckling you. The song bangs, and even if the vocalist is a crank, I still don't quite know how he did it. Most breakthrough singles are about first love. Losing My Edge is about first loss, and second, and third, and et cetera, et cetera, until everyone is just as jaded, just a jaded music critic in the bar right after the ugly light switches on, and you're dancing too much to care. Yeah, well worded, Andy. It's yeah. a very nice way of putting it. It's like breaking through after you've lived an entire life, you know. And, and yeah, 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 as they're breaking through when they're like 20, 21, and we're, and we're just yeah, talking and about how the strokes are just so fucking young. You don't know anything. Yeah, and that's the story of most like successful bands. I feel like that's one of the most intriguing things about LCD Sound System is that they broke through when he was like, well, how fucking old was he? Like thirty-five or something? Yeah, it, it's 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 this. If I knew then what I know now, kind of story. Like he actually does get to right. know all the things of growing up in the scene, and yeah. then and he, becoming and he, famous. He, he and then he laments all of his knowledge. It's it's fucking awesome. Yeah, and and I don't know if it appealed to the younger generation, but for us, it was just. You know, right there. I, I, I mean, do you think LCD? I mean, I know LCD had an impact on the the entire scene, the younger ones, but mm-hmm. but the people that really resonated with it were probably our age, right? I more more close to so. James Murphy. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that Julie, being four years younger than me, is probably the youngest LCD super fan that I know. <laughs> You have no edge to lose. Right? <laughs> Too young. So he says here, uh, I had a revelation that it was easier than I thought. I was afraid and I suddenly became unafraid. Was that the beginning of LCD? Yeah. The combination of David Holmes leaving, the rapture leaving, working on B Connection, and Tim saying the drums sounded really good. Yeah, I mean... and. Yeah, of course that's the beginning of it. It was him realizing for the first time that if he was going to demand perfection from everyone, that he needed to do it himself. Yeah, put your money where your mouth is. It's the guy that knows everything but can't do anything, you know? It's the yeah. It's the eternal it, critic, right? I mean, like... It's the eternal were... critic that eventually 
just does it himself, Throws which is, their hat which is pretty rare. Yeah. It is very rare because most of the time you don't become a critic unless you suck at yeah. doing the thing that you're criticizing. <laughs> yeah, this was, yeah, it was like the reverse. And I love the Moby. Uh, he was saying, and losing my edge, it's hard to say this without sounding a little petulant, but almost everything he mentioned in the song, I was there. <laughs> oh, the Moby. <laughs> Which kind of adds to that whole critics thing because he's saying that he was there, but he actually wasn't really there. It, it's Right, well, that, some of the things he references, he was way too young to actually be there. Exactly, exactly. It, so... It's this critics kind of like I know what is a cool band. Yeah, I was there. I I participated in it. And the funny thing about Moby was like, well, yeah, I actually was there. Yeah, right. <laughs> as an artist, not as a critic. <laughs> so that ends the section on uh, LCD. Basically, that's kind of where we leave them. Uh, him coming up with his first two songs they're losing my edge and beat connection i'm assuming we'll probably get into uh the first albums and kind of gathering the crew together because right now it really is just him in a room by himself creating these Mm -hmm. two songs yeah the 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 crew hasn't been assembled quite yet it's a bit of a diaspora too somebody was in connecticut teaching school or something that they brought him in Juan yeah. McLean. Juan. The the was Juan it? McLean. Yeah. So they were kind of like, we're getting the gang back together. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And finally, chapter 43. Chapter 43. Then this is where we'll end uh, for this session. But it's it's basically the Yaya Yaz uh Cutting Fever to Tell, which is their first album, right? Master yes. was the EP that kind of got all the buzz. And uh, they started kind of touring on it, and it was almost as if they got real self-conscious about doing all of this touring, that they started to cancel shows so that they could focus on the album that was actually going to come out. Because if you have nothing to show for it, you know, after all of this hype, <laughs> right. then it's not going to be a good situation. Yeah. And, oh my God, I love this album so much. This is in my fictional top five of all time, <laughs> which consists of approximately, like, probably 50 albums. But, <laughs> Fever to Tell, oh my God, this album's so good. Have you spent... It seems like... Have you spent much time with this album? Uh, I I can't say that I've spent a bunch of time with it. I've definitely played it yeah. one summer. What well, I, I I I played it around you a lot when I mm-hmm. when I lived in Indiana for that summer. That might be it. Yeah. That may that, that might have been the summer. That might be the summer. The, the the thing that seems like she had most of the songs on the front half of the album, uh, the real bangers, the real kind of crazy, mm-hmm. out-of-control songs. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, more, more like the, the Master EP. Uh-huh, exactly. And uh, it seems like some of the B-sides was what they kind of went back and wrote, and mm-hmm. one of the B-sides, Maps, ends up being 
the big hit, the the kind of the pop song, the breakout song, the song that can they can transition from being just like a a crazy um, yeah. indulgent rock band to an actual um, pop band that's gonna like the song's gonna be in like fucking crazy anatomy and shit. At that <laughs> yeah. Time. <laughs> it is so good and. Like, when a band is, like, so, like, chaotic and all over the place, like, musically, like, just, like, super punk and stuff, but then they, like, slap on, like, this, like, perfect pop song, it's always, like, so Mm -hmm. impressive to me. It's, like, the opposite of Coldplay that does nothing but, (laughs) like, attempts at maps. Sure. They're just swinging for the fences every time. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you, and, um, this was her song uh, Karen O and I love the story Uh, she says we wrote it in Nick's room with a blue drum machine and a four track recorder it was really forlorn at the time Uh, they don't love you like I love you was straight from a love letter I just plucked it out uh, of there because I thought it had a good ring to it just a simple statement that really stuck with people you know, I say love letter, but it was a fucking email, motherfucker. You know what? <laughs> I'm going to rewrite history here. I wrote it with a quill. It was a feather quill written in blood. <laughs> Might as well, Ben. <laughs> and that's what it sounds like when she sings yes! it. Yes! And it yes, was the... written in blood. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's so raw yet so polished. It's a perfect song. A very simple, simple. Well, and it seems is, I, I, and I think they talk about it in this chapter. I'm too drunk to really be sure at this point, but it, <laughs> it seems it, it. There's a sincerity to it. It's absolutely. So I mean, it was sincere. from her life. It was from yeah. her email love letter, and uh, the the guitar jam uh, again. I I I so agree with you. Nick Zenner is a very good guitarist. Nick Z- I, God, I love Nick Zenner so much. And the the little jam at the end of that where it just kind of, it has that simple lyric and then it just goes right out on the jam. Yes. yes. It's so good. Oh, oh maps. Mm. I know, I went back to it and listened to it a couple of times. I'm so excited. We're going to get into uh, TV on the radio next time yes. we, we come back to the book and uh, all the Brooklyn bands. I think really this is going to be where I get super excited. It yeah. was great to come back and see like the beginnings of it. And mm-hmm. uh, I was into the Yeah, Yeah, and Strokes and uh, all these bands, but I never really, they were just kind of plucked out of the sky for me. You know, sure. it was like, uh, I never really even connected it to 9-11. Uh, other than the fact that these were the bands that happened after that. Right. <laughs> um, I, I don't even know if I really connected it to the, oh, man, there's a moment in New York City right now where all these bands are coming out. It was just kind of... Yeah, I don't think know, I ever did either. Until, until the White Stripes was in there, too, yeah. and it was all kind of blurred together. I knew they were from Detroit. I knew the yeah. Strokes were from New York, but, you know, where the fuck were they at? You know, it didn't, yeah. all, it didn't all come together for me. It's yeah. Been, 
But we're moving over to Brooklyn. Your neck of the woods. <laughs> Woo! All right, I think that does it for us this time. Pick up a copy of Meet Me in the Bathroom and follow along with us. The links will be in the show notes to the book and the music used in this episode. Till next time, I've been Nathan Seal. With me was Jeremy Cohen. Thanks for listening to The Radio Cure. Bye. Good God, three hours. Sorry. <laughs>